breaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome back to another episode this week of Reform This. Always a lot to talk about. If you're new, Brace yourself, put your seatbelts on, and we will talk about the things that people don't want to talk about that often aren't on the mainstream, lamestream media, but should be. And uh, we'll talk about national security, counter-radicalization, Muslim reform, the issues of Middle East policy, the things that seem to fall off the front page because of the Trump-obsessed syndrome, the impeachment syndrome that just mystifies me i i just don't get it we'll talk about it in a minute but um a lot to talk about this week uh the un uh, general assembly meeting happened many of you may not have realized that that's always a big event that happens in september in new york city unfortunately we continue to supply a quarter of the budget of the un while most of those blowhard dictators continue to think that they can monopolize the agenda. And thanks to Secretary Pompeo, we actually addressed some substantive issues this week. Unfortunately, the media was too obsessed with uh, their new Russia 2.0. And I also want to talk to you about a piece that appeared in The Economist this week that talked about Muslims on the left and right. Which party is home to American Muslims? And I think that actually runs down to the core of some of the issues that relate to reform, to counter-Islamism, to counter-theocracy. It's a very common question I get is, where does your community, it's not my community, these are Muslims, American Muslims that are diverse. We're not one community, we're not a thousand. There's four million plus Muslims in America. You probably get a little under four million opinions. (laughs) And which party do they belong to? I think it's worth a conversation. And I'll talk to you about the conversation I had with the Economist reporter and the piece he wrote. And also, I think, where party politics in America stand with American Muslims. Quick lightning round, if you will, of some of the issues this week. We heard that chemical weapons use has been confirmed in Syria from May this year, a demonstration by multiple sources that the Assad regime violated the restrictions, the prohibition of the use of chemical weapons. President Trump had, I think rightly so, done six responses to the use of chemical weapons in 2018, I believe. April included blowing up runways and other aspects, areas that they thought might contain some of the depots of chemical weapons. And I think it's important to talk about because, A, it's not being covered. It should be. You've got apologists for the Assad regime, like Tulsi Gabbard, continuing to get some large audiences and continuing to to spew the Iranian line that Saudi Arabia is the main threat to the world and all this other nonsense, somebody needs to cover some real news out there and expose to the American public that 
there's some real crimes happening, and it's not just Saudi Arabia. And in fact, Saudi Arabia is an ally. In fact, Saudi Arabia is loosening a lot of its rules and restrictions. It doesn't make them reformers, but it does make the kingdom opening up and that things that the left has called for for decades are beginning to happen and they almost seem to be becoming much more anti-Saudi than they've ever been. The Wall Street Journal reported that Syria had staged a chlorine attack in May. U.S. intelligence also confirmed. So what's going on? Why isn't anybody covering it? We also saw with the UNGA General Assembly this week, Secretary Pompeo talked about a sobering discussion with survivors of China's re-education camps in Xinjiang, also described as East Turkmenistan, a state which should be separated from China because of the horrific genocide that's being done against the Uyghurs in that area. China's brutal campaign, as Secretary Pompeo stated to the UN, of repression against the Uyghurs and other Muslim minorities is appalling and the international community must demand an end to this blatant assault on religious freedom and human rights. They're not only re-educating them, quote-unquote, they are forcing them to eat pork, they're forcing them to rip up and burn their Korans, they are forcing them to renounce their faith and accept the Communist Party doctrine. Pompeo asked, asked God to bless the Uyghur people for their courage and to bless the United States of America for standing with them. And I applaud him. We also saw this week Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib hugs Ibrahim Samira who's running for some office in Virginia, either state rep or uh, a uh, council of some kind. I don't know. It doesn't really matter. As far as I'm concerned, he's pretty irrelevant. But the bottom line is, is that she then tweets out, as he does, as one congresswoman put it, impeach the MFR. Again, using this horrific language, tr- this this language that uh, uh, is is fit for barroom type demeanor, and you see the Islamists coming together as the left gets radicalized themselves and continuing to push the mantra of impeachment. And as Ari Fleischer put it this week, seriously, are we are we going down this road again? And again, this program is not one we're going to get into all the details of the conversations that were released by this uh, so-called whistleblower that uh, um, have to do with Ukraine and Senator Biden and others. But the issue is impeachment is basically the political death penalty. And they misfired the first time around. And now they're already talking about it again with Speaker Pelosi beginning an impeachment inquiry. And again, it's relevant to this program because it's distracting the United States from what we should be covering, from the attention that we should be paying to security threats. Uh, As we saw last week, I talked about a mechanic in Florida 
that worked for American Airlines that had been ready to sabotage a flight claimed it was about union and employee benefits when, in fact, he had videos of ISIS and his brother was in Iraq working with ISIS. Covered for about three minutes on most newscasts and the lamestream media. Meanwhile, the Islamist congresswomen Tlaib and Omar are rattling their sabers about impeachment. Congresswoman Omar last week threatened President Trump through Twitter that Twitter should suspend his Twitter account because of his threats, supposedly incitement against her. Now, as you see with the Islamists, anything that they can't respond to is incitement. Anything that points out their loyalties to other countries, their loyalties to separatist movements and ideas, somehow portrays them in a light that they think is going to get them hurt by radicals. But no, never mind that I'm listed on their Islamophobia list as one of the leading enemies of Islam. No, that they can continue to do as an incitement and a death warrant. That's okay for them to do, but take away the platform of the President of the United States is what she feels she has the importance to do. It was ignored. So, what I wanted to talk to you about today, the reality is, what's going on in politics? What can we learn from the way American Muslims shift and lean? This piece at the Erasmus blog at The Economist was titled, Why American Muslims Lean Leftwards for 2020. Islam's followers are not so much firebrands as nomads in search of a home. And I have to tell you, for most media, this was a pretty balanced piece. And uh, I would ask you to take a look at it. And I think uh, for a reporter, and a, a and this is a blog, so it had some opinion in it, uh, but uh, published by The Economist and Islam and Politics, September 22nd, 2019. He started out before the presidential election in 2000. G.W. Bush was urged by an advisor to go after a category of voters who would love a business-friendly, socially conservative message, Muslims. Mr. Bush took the tip, and it worked. In 01, a survey of American Muslims found that 42% reported voting for Mr. Bush against 31% for his uh, Democratic rival, Al Gore. Among many upwardly mobile Muslim immigrants, many of them professionals, entrepreneurs, the proportion of voting for Republicans was much higher. Now, however, with the anti-Muslim sentiment ablaze among supporters of Trump and the president hardly discouraging it, that loving is a distant memory. American Muslims are gaining political visibility, but only on the far left of the spectrum. Symptomatic of this shift is the election to the House of Representatives two Muslim women, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, who along with two female colleagues, also left-wing Democrats, have taunted Mr. Trump and supporters. By 2007, 63% of American Muslims at least leaned towards the Democrats, only 11% for Republicans. Pew poll showed that in 2016, 8% said they opted for Mr. Trump and 78% for Hillary. So what what caused this shift? P. 
Pew estimates 3.5 million Muslims in America, 1% of the country's population. The main reasons for the transformation, he says, have been much analyzed. And he goes through some of the issues. And I was fairly interviewed in this. And the quote I'll pick out, and then I'll talk to you about this balance, and let's let's have a conversation about it if we can. Dr. Jasser feels the Muslims equaled left stereotype is partly the fault of his community's self-appointed representatives, not so much the young firebrands as the community's elderly godfathers. In his view, these veteran leaders have one big failing. They've never really distanced themselves from the global cause of Islamism. The notion that the only ideal form of governance is a Muslim one. They are not, of course, proposing such a regime for America, but many have a record of endorsing political Islam elsewhere. That soft spot for Islamism makes them politically toxic in the eyes of mainstream conservatives, leaving Muslims nowhere to go but left. As he tours America addressing conservative groups, Dr. Jasser finds them open to persuasion that the political doctrine of Islamism, which in his view can and must be separated from the spiritual teaching of Islam, is their real foe. He lays out the case that Islam as a set of metaphysical beliefs and ethical norms can flourish in America and elsewhere under the principle of church-state separation, which was dear to the Founding Fathers. Once that argument is made, his listeners are open to persuasion that decent American Muslims are allies against Islamism. So, I think it's important. He has his perspective in the piece and obviously gives voice to some other folks that may agree on some things I said and other things I disagree on. But the one point that I think is worth taking a deep dive into is that in America, there's a, there's a whole host of issues that define whether you fall to the right or to the left or you choose independent position where you sometimes you choose left, sometimes you choose right. The two-party system, while some ways suffocating to some, in other ways is stabilizing when you compare to countries with multiple, multiple parties. Multiple parties can end up leaving a plurality, sometimes a 30% controlling elections. We see this acting out in Israel. We see it in France and we see it elsewhere. But this dynamic is layered upon a history. The history evolves into a platform for these parties. Now, the Muslim population in America, when you talk about a Muslim vote, it's not really often along the lines of their faith practice, but upon the lines in which they see themselves as a political identity. Political identity. So then when they get to the voting booth, when they get to the activism, when they want to donate to a candidate, what mobilizes their activity? It is the group, the tribe that they've attached their hitch to. 
This tribalism is a politic that is dominant from the countries in which our families came. It's not about individual ideas. It's not about critical thinking. It's about a tribalism of collectivism. In the Middle East, you have a struggle between the tribalism of Arabism versus the tribalism of theocracy or Islamism and a Sharia state. Both use Sharia, the Arabists and the Islamists, but the Islamists use it as an as as a means and an ends. And the Arabists use it mostly as a means, but the end is really Arab nationalism and it's socialism. But they're both socialist economically. But in America, you've got 30 to 40 percent, 30 to 40 percent of the American Muslim population African American. And the reason I separate that out is there's still significant separation in the American Muslim community between mosques that are African American and those that are not. So the voting dynamics of the African American population, now that's not obviously completely true. I don't have the statistics in front of me. If you look at the leadership in Isna, you see imams like Muhammad Majid, uh, the head of one of the leading Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups in America, who I've debated a few times on air and elsewhere. And he toes the line of the Indo-Pakistani, Arabist, Arab-Islamist, Islamic Society of North America. But it's mostly, obviously, Islamist and Muslim Brotherhood-like in its ideas as a progeny of the Muslim Brotherhood and its formation by the Saudi movements of the MSA in the late 60s, early 70s. But that African-American community has its leaders, etc. But the bottom line is is the mosques, which are diverse. There are some Sunni Islamist mosques. There's Nation of Islam, which are Louis Farrakhan, as you know. The, the bigotry that's spewed from Farrakhan and his movement, the separatist Nation of Islam movement. And then you've got the W.D. Muhammad mosque. But yet, when it comes to political identification and you look at the African-American community, 90% vote Democrat. And there's some even hint with the work of folks like Candace Owens and other that that may change. But again, this is based on the fact that the left of the Democratic Party has appealed to tribalism among the African-American community based on skin color, based on, not based on ideas. They'll claim it's based on ideas, but the NAACP, the, the history with Jesse Jackson and, and uh, so many other icons has been really about a racial identification and tribalism. So I would in some ways uh, separate that out from the rest of the American Muslim population. Because the data is there. The data is there about uh, the way the African-American population votes. So now you're left with the other 60-70% of American Muslims that also are majority Indo-Pakistani, probably 20-30%, and then the remainder are 20% Arab-American. And then a smattering 
of Muslims from all over the world, including Indonesia, Malaysia, Europe, Africa, and elsewhere. Northern Africa, etc. Russia, Uzbekistan, etc. So, a diverse population. Where do they vote? I can tell you as the son of Syrian immigrants that I would peel away also Arab Americans, Indian Americans, Chinese Americans that are Muslims that escaped because of political reasons, whether it's from Pakistan or Afghanistan or Iraq or elsewhere, and came here for freedom. Political refugees from Muslim-majority countries came here for ideological reasons, and those that are here for ideological reasons usually understand the political ideas that are the platforms of the parties. My father sought out America to come here, not because he could make a better living as a doctor, but because his father was imprisoned. His father fought the Baathists. He fought the Baathists. And their their properties, their businesses were nationalized by the radical socialists of the Baath party that are still in power with Bashar, son of Hafiz, Assad. And this tyranny, this tyrannical regime that exerted the genocide through some of the toughest lessons of their lives taught them that the most blessed political system and society on the planet were Western democracies. And he especially had an affinity for American democracy and its religious freedom and its constitution and bill of rights. So it's not only the principles of the makeup of the foundation and contract of American society that was important to them, but he also taught me the values of the Republican Party, that the platform was a pro-life platform, a platform of free markets, free enterprise, rugged individualism, a platform of Second Amendment rights and the ability to protect yourself from invaders to your home, those who may attack you, that this government protects an individual's right to self-defense, an individual's right to free speech, to religious freedom. And he had a natural affinity for the Republican Party, as did my mom, for not only its social values, but for its strength, its peace through strength, its concept of a a pride in American exceptionalism around the world with no apologies for who we are and the need to allow other people, not only in America, to have an American dream that gives them every opportunity, but other people around the world can develop similar dreams for freedom and then identify it as an Egyptian dream, a Syrian dream, but one based on individual freedom away from the tyranny of the tribe. So I think you can separate out those that come here for political understanding of what this country means. And then you're sort of left with the rest. And this is why I think we should have some vetting. Why should people come to the United States that don't really understand the social contract of America? If they're only coming here for economic reasons... That's fine, but there are other countries in which they can economically succeed that may not be liberal democracies. But having said that, I think that ultimately we have to be realistic that many of the immigrants that came here, so most of, we already, 
uh, I would submit to you that the vast, vast majority of the Indo-Pakistani population I was talking to you about or the Arab population that are Americans from the American Muslim community are, are going to be those that came from countries in which political activism was not based in clear party politics. Or if there were parties, it was either a nationalist party or an Islamist theocratic party. In Pakistan, a Jamaat Islamiyah, the borderline terrorist, I say borderline because they still are a functioning party, but obviously they fuel terrorism, as do every Islamist party. But you then had the National Pakistani party that was the military party. Those are nationalists. But things that mirror the ideology of the platform of the left and right in America just are very unique to America. And the concept of pushing against theocracy while in America it made sense in the 1800s from a pushback against theocracy as the founding fathers wanted to prevent the establishment of religion, political parties in Pakistan and Saudi Arabia and Middle East did not, did not have that evolution, have not had it yet. And that's what our Muslim reform movement is about. But to think somehow that the American Muslim population and especially the immigrant segments of that are going to all of a sudden buy into the platforms of the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, there needs to be an education, a sophistication in the understanding of the priorities. Now, do the politics of divisiveness, of partisan hackery help? No. When you see parties fighting over impeachment, over over uh, identity politics, the left's obsession with identity politics, whether it be the skin-deep racial politics or the uh, hijab politics uh, or whatever it might be, it minimizes the ideologies that they claim to represent, be it gay rights, be it feminism, supposedly pro-choice, etc. So, the development of an affinity for a particular party, you know, when when I spoke to this reporter, as often I've spoken to reporters about you know, what, what do you think? Are there Arab Republicans? Do you have an Arab Republican movement or Arabs for Trump or, or Arabs for Obama or etc.? Again, that's a skin deep racial identification with a candidate. That doesn't make any sense. A candidate has a host of ideas that they believe in, a party has a host of ideas in their platform. That should not have an affinity based on race should not have an affinity based on faith because within that faith, I should be able to go to mosque and pray next to socialists, free marketeers, communists, uh, uh, conservatives, nationalists, whatever it might be. Whatever I might agree or disagree with, when we go pray at our Friday prayer and listen to the sermon, then 
that is un, should be unrelated to these skin deep issues. So, all this is to say that I think the American Muslim identity is still in its infant stage. That infant stage is related to understanding the fact that despite all the noise from media and Twitter and Facebook, etc., despite all the noise, there are core issues that make someone a conservative versus making somebody a liberal in American politics. And again, don't confuse liberal in America with classical liberalism that I think is more like conservatism for me. Australians don't get it wrong. Their liberal party is our conservative party by platform. So when I talk to American Muslims after the sermon, after the prayer about about Republican politics and why I'm a Republican, I tell them it has to do with some core issues. And I don't think their Muslim identity should, you know, naturally it's synergistic. My politics are synergistic with many of my faith beliefs because I bring my morals and my ethics to it. It doesn't mean that people that disagree with me are not moral or ethical, but it means that nobody's trying to separate, nobody's trying to separate your values from the ideas that you believe in. But your mosque's establishment, its leadership, should not become political parties. And your political party attachment to PACs or party politics should not then become the driver for your religious identity groups. And this is why you saw such swings in the American Muslim vote. Because I think if you talk to, and you look at the top issues, they did some polls back in 2000, when Muslims voted predominantly for Bush, the top issues for them were related to free markets, were related to independence, immigration, family values. So they went 40 plus percent to Bush. Then the Iraq war happens. And even before that, by the way, the reason it wasn't 80% for Bush is because the dominance of the Islamists as political leaders in our communities creates a warped sense of priorities among our colleagues. So the warped sense of priorities is not driven by American media, but what are they watching at home? Many of the immigrant populations are watching Indian TV, Qatar, Al Jazeera, watching press TV, Iranian television. Etc. So the Islamist movements in America are not being driven necessarily only, if not even predominantly, by American Islamist media, but by global Islamist media, which is not really and the same. If you look at the top 10 issues and every election, they look at this within the Muslim community. Still, among Muslims, bizarrely, I think it's often the Israeli-Palestinian issue. It's often identity politics about Muslims now rather than about health care, about education, about taxes, about national defense. So the priorities for our communities are being driven and, and monopolized by political movements that are Islamist or Arabist, 
as you see with groups like the Arab American Institute, uh, uh, driven by the Arabist uh, uh, James Zulbi, who seems to find no problem in working with the Islamists, hand in hand, uh, goes from working with uh, the board of banks in Saudi Arabia to hand in glove with the Muslim Brotherhood movements, uh, be it the Council on American Islamic Relations, the Hamas loving outfit, or the Muslim Public Affairs Council, etc. And they do it under the rubric of Arab identity. And he was a major operative for the Obama administration and the Arab population of the Democratic Party. And you see some history there with the old Senator James Aburuza and others. But there's also history of Republican Arab senators, uh, be it John Sinunu, be it uh, who was a governor in New Hampshire. Shaheen, I think, uh, was a Democrat. But bottom line is, is they use the racial identification when it suits them but it really makes no sense ideologically. And I think it signals a poor sophistication when it comes to the ideologies and the platforms of the parties that obviously they're trying to exploit. They're trying to exploit the naivete of many who want to vote the same. And I think other faith communities, other racial communities see the same nonsense, be it the African-American community that's exploited, I think, often by the left, maybe sometimes ignored by the right, but they're not. You see many African-American candidates on the Republican side. But the racial identity politics, I think, takes thought out of the process and makes it into a tribalism. And again, we see it also in the, in the um, Hispanic American community. But this antagonism, please don't ignore the fact that that exists in the Muslim community. That the racial identification, that the Rashida playbook is about making the Palestinian American community think that they must unite against whatever other conspiracy theory that they have to fight against, be it the anti-Zionist, anti-Semitic ideas that they push out in the Palestinian-American establishment that speaks for or with Rashida Tlaib, or the Islamists of Ilhan Omar and the Muslim Brotherhood groups that claim they speak for our communities. So to them, the top priorities are tribalism, collectivism, separatism, Muslim Brotherhood ideologies, be it protection of enclaves of Sharia, so-called freedom, but actually turning a blind eye to human rights abuses inside America done against women, done against children through the invocation of Sharia systems. And if you're saying rolling your eyes that it doesn't happen here, talk to women that have tried to get a divorce religiously through their mosque that are not secular but rather religious and then found themselves not having their rights heard and didn't have enough strength or sophistication or whatever it might be to go outside the community to a regular American lawyer. These things exist. So the Tlaib, Omar, red-green axis that they work with the communist socialist movements of AOC and others, they are bonding with that and pulling the rest of 
the Muslim communities through this gravitational force of, of collectivism and social media oppression. I call it oppression because it is a, it's sort of this threshold in which studies have shown, as I've talked to you about as we try to push our reform movement, all you need is 10% of the community to start talking and moving and causing noise before all of a sudden you have a tidal wave. And it sweeps with it the rest of the normal American Muslims that are non-Islamists. So the primary issues, family values. And this is how sometimes you saw Hamza Youssef, for example, from Zaytuna Institute, who was selected by Secretary Pompeo to serve on the Commission of Unalienable Rights. We're still trying to learn what that commission does, but he selected him. Why? On the one hand, Hamza Youssef got a lot of pushback because he succumbed to the Trump administration and the Islamists are all fired up, especially his colleagues at Zaytuna tried to apologize for it and said, oh, he's gonna, he's trying to build bridges, etc. Bottom line is there were two issues, I think, that they saw that made him conservative, which was the fact that he's pro-life and the fact that he's pro-family, and I think he's also openly anti-gay. I don't think that makes him a conservative. And actually, he's pro-authoritarian. Pro-authoritarian. He's actually made statements that the Syrian revolution was ill-advised. They should just accept their ruler. He's made statements that the reason he's working with President Trump is because he believes that accepting the, the decisions of the population, population is what should happen. Well, sure. Nobody's calling for anarchy. And he's comparing America to revolutions in the Middle East, seriously? I mean, the, the whole concept, just take a look at what, what, what Hamza Yusuf has said about accepting authoritarian. He said the same thing about Erdogan in Turkey. Tyrants that really need revolutions, if you are a moral, ethical leader, are not like following commander-in-chief being critical, being honest, but not driving anarchical revolutions in a democracy that's, for the most part, pretty darn functional here in America. And he has another number of areas. He has uh, not shown conservatism at all. I, I don't see him pushing back against socialism. I don't see him pushing back against the the invisible, not the invisible hand of free enterprise, which he should endorse, but rather... Sharia finance, which he teaches. There is nothing. I mean, you could somehow try to split the hair, the ends of a hair about Sharia finance and the fact that it drives competition, etc. It tries to, but the bottom line is it's, it is an authoritarian tool used by Islamist regimes around the planet. He doesn't have anything about free markets. He's a problem, and I've talked about it before, but I do think that to simply accept him as a conservative because of two issues is absurd. I'd say one and a half, too. So this sophistication needs to be advanced. Conservatives are not just on those two issues. Conservatism is believing in the strength of American identity based in the Constitution, based in its anti-theocracy, based in its secular liberal democracy, not 
a secularism that's against religion, but as religion as its first liberty, that religious freedom might allow secularists also the ability to have equal access to that freedom, but it doesn't also reject a person's individual religious freedom. Which is why you could you could talk about uh, many of these landmark cases at the Supreme Court from both perspectives of religious freedom, be they whether you're an atheist or a God-fearing Christian. A baker has a right to decide who or what he will make a cake for. That's freedom. So, again, I, I don't know where Yusuf stands on these things, but all I can tell you is that um, his ability to articulate what it means to be a Republican is want and abysmal. I've never heard him give speeches in which I'd ever be proud of the, of him representing himself as an American conservative. He stood by many conservatives that I have the highest respect for. But I don't think they've quizzed him about his beliefs what of what should happen in a governance system where Muslims are 99% of the population. What role would an Islamic state have? Is an Islamic state even valid? Would the military be fighting a jihad? Or would they be part of a diverse non-jihadist military entity? Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So these party politics are complicated. But again, I think it teaches you a lot about the need for Muslim reform when you start to look at what ideas are driving the shifts of votes from Bush in 2000 to Kerry in 04 to Obama in 08 and 012, 2012, and then against Trump. It was all about identity politics. It wasn't about the core values. And until we start teaching our children outside the university system that's dominated by the red-green axis, outside the university system that's dominated by, by, by uh, uh, um, safe spaces and inability to ask questions and criticize Islamists and criticize Islam and, and begin to integrate into an understanding of American constitutional law, etc. Now, until we get out of that trap... And that suffocation, I don't think we're going to be able to see American Muslims engage with the deepest issues. This is why, if you look at uh, the, even the politicians that are Muslim, that happen to be Muslim, you know, the Ilhan Omar speech on tra- defending transgender rights, do you really believe that was genuine? It made no sense with the other groups that she gives lip service to, the Islamist theocrats. And her ideas were just read off a piece of paper. She didn't really believe in transgender rights. I meet American Muslims that claim to be conservative, and yet they they can't seem to often articulate what makes them conservative, and they end up saying, well, I know most, and it's an apologetic that, well, most Republicans are pro-immigrant, and, and that's why I'm involved here. I know they're not into, well, okay, fine. We need to begin to understand, and again, I'm not saying this to generalize, but rather to begin to have a conversation about building an idea in our think tanks and our activist organizations and in PACs and elsewhere, a, a, a cornerstone of various key ideas, foundational ideas 
that develop both a Muslim conservative consciousness and a Muslim liberal consciousness and an independent consciousness and a diverse one that's all over the map. It's not just one. But that should be based on ideas that come first from reason and that we happen to be Muslim. Not one based on first we're Muslim and this is what's in our interest or we're going to vote that way. That's what I'm talking about. All right. It's always great to be with all of you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Share it with your friends. Find me on Facebook at MZ Jasser. Find me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D-R-Z-U-H-D-I-J-A-S-S-E-R. Always great to be with you on Reform This. God bless. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.